You're listening to the Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts, Howard Schweitzer and Mark Alderman. All right, welcome to another episode of the Beltway Briefing. Today is uh, Monday, October 21st. It's Howard Schweitzer, and we're coming to you today from the Windy City, Chicago, where uh, we are celebrating the addition of our new uh, Chicago colleagues here. Um, and I have John Dunn and Pat Carey, who have recently joined us from another firm in Chicago to lead our Chicago City practice. And I'm also joined today by Katie Schwab and Rose Christ from our New York office. They lead our New York City practice. So welcome everybody. And let me start out by articulating why Cozen has invested in city practices. There is a leftward shift taking place in every major city, almost every major city in the United States. And it's having, as we see it, a massive impact on the corporate community and the not-for-profit community for that matter. And so we as a business wanna be places that um, are impactful um, in terms of in terms of our clients and help our clients deal with those issues. So we now have top tier practices in three of the five largest cities in the country, New York, Chicago, and Philadelphia. And we are very excited to be able to help clients in, in all those places. So we start every Beltway briefing, and this is obviously an outside the Beltway briefing, but every Beltway briefing episode with a few true false questions. So let's do that here. True or false, the progressive leftward shift in major cities is a temporary phenomenon. Rose. So I think it remains to be seen, true or false, but it's going to be interesting to watch a lot of these progressive left candidates who have been recently elected. They're in their first term and they ran on some pretty big promises, things like universal free tuition, universal health care, things that they don't necessarily have the power themselves to be able to enact. But nonetheless, they promised it to the constituents who voted for them. So I think it'll be interesting to see if they can't deliver on the goods, whether or not the voters turn out for them again and whether or not that base of far left progressives remained energized through another election cycle or if things sort of fizzle out if they can't deliver on, on what they've promised. What do you guys think? So uh, this is John Dunn uh, in Chicago. Um, I, I don't think it's temporary, but I guess for, for me, the question is, is it long term? I mean, it's been here long enough. Um, I don't know, to Rose's point, is it sustainable? Is it going to keep going a year from now, two years from now, three years from now? If you look at the playbook, um, the playbook has been um, can't get stuff done in D.C., can't get stuff done at state capitals. So let's start in Seattle and San Francisco and then go to the union towns like here in Chicago and New York and Philadelphia and Boston. And it works. And so I think as long as it keeps working, um, they'll keep pushing those buttons. So I guess two two final points. One is will it keep working? Not really sure. And number two, at some point, and Rose touched on this, you'll start to see the impacts of some of these changes and some of these impacts may slow down the, the momentum also. For me, it's, just, it's surprising because the cities have been run by Democrats for the most part for a long time. And if they've been Republicans, like from time to time in New York City, uh, they're, they're, 
very left-leaning Republicans. And things haven't necessarily gotten, quality of life hasn't necessarily improved. Income inequality hasn't necessarily gotten better. Yet they're shifting further to the left. It doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but um, I think for at least, a, my view is that for at least a while, um, until there are economic consequences associated with the leftward shift, it's not going anywhere. Um, second question, large corporations will increasingly leave the major cities and shift their businesses to the suburbs. John. So I think initially, and speaking for Chicago, I don't think that's going to happen in, in, in the immediate future anytime soon. Um, as unfortunately for, for businesses, um, as much as they complain about, and rightfully complain, frankly, about some of the changes and some of the taxes and some of the difficulties of doing business in a big city, that's where the action is. And, and, and in fact, in Chicago, we're seeing the opposite. You're seeing um, uh, corporations moving downtown um, McDonald's is a great example. They were out in the suburbs for a million years and they came downtown about a year ago. Um, and there's a, a lot of other examples of that. So mm. when they try to recruit talent, um, a lot of the kids coming right out of college don't want to live in a suburb. They want to live in a, in a downtown big city. I completely agree. I think the amenities that the cities offer are still there. And I think the young, talented workforce that so many of these companies rely on definitely is drawn to the cities. So I think for now that that's a pretty safe condition. Do you think that has to happen um, in order for the progressive tide to to shift? I mean, it does. There is a cyclicality to politics and policy. Uh, so it's it isn't necessarily going to last forever. But what what's the what causes an economic shift such that there's a little bit of reversion to the mean on this stuff? Pat. So this is Pat Carey, and I think it's what John touched on, which is that the corporations follow the talent, and right now the talent is locating, you know, in major urban areas. The young people uh, want to live in cities, they want to live near mass transit, they want to live near the amenities, and until you know those uh, talented individuals, you know, shift their. Uh, you know, living arrangements or where they want to be and where they want to raise their families, um, the corporations are going to have to follow those people where they are. And I think that's the same um, generation of folks that are uh, largely supportive of a lot of these policies. And so I think that's the nexus that the the major employers you know, find themselves in that, you know, in order to chase the talented employees that help drive their profitable uh, business structures also means they have to, you know, look at how to, you know, manage the navigate some of these challenging uh, corporate uh, policy environments. Great. Third question coming to you, Katie. The political trends in all of these major cities basically are the same, true or false? Well, there definitely are similarities. And I think what's happening is that many of the policymakers in the cities are looking to issues that they would have liked to have seen solved at the state or national level, and then are um, just trying to gain traction with a more sympathetic more local audience in their in their city councils or in their city legislatures. So we're seeing issues on labor and employment. We see issues on fair wages. We see issues on um, environmental impact things that aren't getting done at the federal level. So I, I see lots of similarities in Chicago and Philadelphia and Seattle and Portland. I think there's many, many consistent yeah. themes. I mean, I've seen it in my time in the business, or I spend most of my time at the federal level, but I've helped clients at, at all levels. And it's striking how things can get done in the cities relative to Washington. Mm -hmm. If things actually get done, 
It is hand-to-hand combat. That's my observation as far as the difference between legislating in a city environment and in Washington, as bloody as Washington can be at times, but you can actually get stuff done in the city. So let's let's open the discussion at, at a high level. Um, John and, and Katie, I'll start with each of you. What's What's happening in Chicago, John? What's what's top of mind and 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 in New York, Katie? But first, Chicago. So top of mind in Chicago is um, the mayor, Mayor Lightfoot. is still relatively new. She took office in May, so she's been in office a few months. She's heading into her first um, budget cycle, and budget cycle for any mayor, new mayor, you know, mayor's been around a long time. Budget cycles are different, so this is, um, I think, her first biggest test. Um, city's got a pretty big um, budget deficit and um, she's got to close it. So I think that's going to be her first challenge. And I also mentioned we're right in the middle of a teacher strike, so I can't, I can't ignore that as a challenge for any big city mayor either. Um, looks like the strike might get resolved relatively soon, but we're in day three. And um, so it's already gone on longer than some people thought it might. Katie. Our mayor, our mayor has returned to New York, having abandoned his presidential aspirations and is reclaiming his progressive mantle. It's what he based his you know, national campaign on. It's what he ran on for his second term. Um, and the themes that he espouses are very popular across the boards. You know, New York City is really a one-party town. The city council speaker is very interested in progressive themes. He's embracing um, pedestrianization of the city, more bike lanes, less cars. Um, and there are very few objections to those. And there was just a rally this weekend for Bernie Sanders, where our um, local Congress member Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez held yeah. a, you know, appeared at a huge rally. Yep. So there is not a lot of um, challenge to the progressive movement in New York City. What, where does this? Where does it come from? What's driving this progressivism? Is it is it Trump? Is it income inequality? Is it campaign contributions? What What is it? Because it is, it is striking how it, as you said earlier, John, it starts on the left coast and moves to the right coast, and I guess that makes some sense. But um, it's it's just it's striking how pervasive it is in the cities. So this is Pat. I think there are two things at play in Chicago. Um, one has already been touched on in our conversation, which is the um, you know solid um, base of organized labor in the major cities and the um, push um, for by those unions to continue to advocate for their membership. And then I think it's exacerbated by things like income inequality and just overall instability that people are experiencing. It's been you know more than a decade since the Great Recession, but a lot of families have not felt the full strength of the recovery. And it's that uncertainty and that um, kind of tentativeness of their own personal financial situation that I think is leading them to look to some of these uh, larger, more policy-driven um, solutions. Bruce. Yeah, and I would just add to that, I think that you're exactly right about the, the labor unions really driving a lot of the shift to the left. We're seeing in New York more and more the labor unions starting as sort of like a breeding ground for elected officials, a training ground for them, a lot of them coming out of union employment into becoming candidates. And so that's an interesting trend and part of it. I think the other part is a reaction to what we're seeing on the national level to what's happening at the White House. I think that certainly fuels the rhetoric on the progressive left mm-hmm. side. And um, I think it leads people to be maybe more fiery on the left than even they would have been otherwise because it's very popular with their base, right? And so once you start talking in a certain way, you need to sort of deliver the goods on the 
on the policy and the legislation. So we're seeing these really, you know, aggressive pieces of policy get pushed forward, which otherwise maybe wouldn't have gotten traction, but but today they really are. I was going to say real quick, this is John, on, um, on the union point that you made, Rose, I think that's interesting. You know, SEIU about 10 years ago, um, the SEIU Local 1 is, the, the, is, is here in Chicago. And about 10 years ago, when, when Andy Stern ran the, um, ran the National, I mean, they made a very concerted, focused effort, maybe 15 years ago, to start focusing on local races um, with the idea that you get somebody elected to a city council and then they become a state legislator and then they become a congressman. And, you know, frankly, to some degree, it's worked, right? And so they've been very um, um, focused for over a decade on that. So I, I do think that um, is one of the impacts. The other one is, um, I, I think income inequality is one of the issues, but the low unemployment, which is almost like counterintuitive, but I, I wonder if this historically low unemployment we have now sort of gives people the freedom to say, hey, you know what, I'm not really mm-hmm. that as worried about finding a job or losing my job. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if that's no, part that's of it or interesting. not. So. I don't think it's Trump personally. I, well, I think I don't think it's a rea- reaction to his presidency. My view is that the same forces, the same populist forces that brought him to victory in 2016, are driving on the other side of the aisle um, the 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 progressivism to the fore. I think it, I think a lot of it. You mentioned the Great Recession. I think a lot of it stems from bailouts and bonuses back in 08, 09, um, when I was in the Treasury Department bailing out the big banks, there was a lot of public animus toward what we were doing, totally understandably, there should have been. And I think a lot of that bred, it bred a sense of um, lack of fairness in the economy, and that it's going to take a long time. The political workout from that period is going to take a long, long time, and I think Trump's a part of that. I think, too, though, that, you know, it reminds me sometimes of the Tea Party, the way the Tea Party started out as what seemed a little bit of a fringe group of people. Yeah, and they very, very, you know, in a very concerted way, became very organized. And then before long, they had really taken control of the Republican Party and had a very, very loud voice. And certainly in New York, there are very leftist groups that have been quietly organizing people who weren't previously engaged in the process very more marginalized people, very low income people, people, um, undocumented people, immigrants. And those folks have just slowly but surely become more and more engaged in the process and and turned the dialogue in a different direction. So they've just become in a very natural way and often funded by the labor unions, they've become much more influential than they were. And, and to Katie's point, a lot of these sort of newer forming groups, they're now usurping a lot of the power that was historically held by Democratic or Republican political clubs and neighborhoods. And those are really important you know, factors in local elections. And so as we see new citywide umbrella progressive advocacy organizations creating PACs, fundraising, really getting boots on the ground, they're usurping what is the more traditional sort of democratic machine that was the kingmaker historically. And now the power of those those entities is really limited or, or questionable. Right, it's been very destabilizing. 
Yeah. yeah, And I think Rose hits on a great point there, particularly here in Chicago. Our new mayor, uh, Mayor Lightfoot, was elected on a reform platform, you know, very much running uh, quite literally against the head of the Cook County, Cook County Democratic Party, excuse me, you know, kind of the, the bastion of machine politics mm-hmm. here in Chicago. And so people have a real uh, thirst to see, you know, change to that historical um, way of going about things in politics, but there's been a vacuum, and that vacuum, I agree, has been very much filled uh, by some of these progressive groups. Yeah, a lot of it is blocking and tackling, right? It's signing people up and going door to door. And it's like fashion community right, organizing. Right. That's what they've done. Right. right. So if you're a corporate CEO, an executive director of a not for profit, if you're somebody doing business in New York or Chicago, well, how do you think about this? How do you engage in this conversation? I think. Um, Part of it is just recognizing that this is happening. So I, I go back to um, um, when I worked um, at the city of Chicago and the uh, anti-smoking ordinances were, were rolling out. And you had a group of restaurants that just fought and fought and fought. And you you finally had to sit down with them and say, this is going to happen. Like, this is coming. So you're going to have to deal with it. And, you know, now people don't, you know, could care less about the, the, the smoking ordinance. So I think the first thing is the recognition that, um, some of these things need to be mitigated or maybe made better, but you know it's coming, and you're gonna have to figure out a way to to deal with it. Can you engage though? I mean, can you? Is there give and take? Is there room for give and take as these policies come into play? Well, that and that really, I think that at, at a city level, that depends a lot on the mayor. It depends on the council also, but it really depends on. Um, the mayor on a particular issue, if the mayor is going to engage in the middle, and what I would describe as sort of a traditional mayor's role of I'm going to balance the interest of this, this group versus that group, then I think there is room to engage. But, you know, if the mayor jumps in on the other side or jumps in, frankly, jumps in on your side, isn't in the middle, it, it makes it tough to, um, tough to engage. Katie, is that happening now? I mean... I agree. It is, it's challenging. And um, we always are looking for ways to be part of the solution. I mean, so often the, um, you know, the progressive movement is about trying to solve legitimate challenges for people. And so how can we position ourselves as part of the solution to those challenges? So how are our clients good employers? How can we demonstrate that they are good employers and that a good job is fundamental to a nice quality of life for anyone? And, um, but, but engaging in the conversation, if it's become too polarized, is, is often very challenging. So that's definitely one of the issues that we deal with every day. Sometimes you need a new type of media. Sometimes you need a new type of spokesperson. Sometimes it really just has to do with spending more time together, perhaps on site in a location, so that people really hear each other and understand each other, not while the cameras are rolling. Rose, jump in. Yeah, and I think if you're the head of a major not-for-profit, for example, really talking about the other ways that you're doing work that advances the equity objectives of the progressive left or the, the powers that be in the city. I know we spend a lot of time talking about how nonprofits can continue to meet their mission and provide the public benefits that they're chartered to, to offer while also complying with the, the, 
cities increasingly onerous labor and employment requirements. And so there really is this balance. We've talked a lot about big corporations today and how they are able to respond to to new requirements or policies at the city level, but really often it's the small businesses or even the not-for-profits that are hit very hard by these new and onerous rules. Um, and so talking about the ways in which they maybe are um, inequitably impacted by what are well-intended policies is, is one approach and one that we've been trying to advance and I think we'll continue to have to ramp up in working together collectively as a sector as opposed to an individual organization. You also have with the with the not for profits some of the bigger not for profits like hospitals for mm-hmm. instance. I mean, not for profits have sort of been given a pass maybe, and for some of the particularly the bigger not for profits, th- those days are over. Where mm-hmm. they they are they are the targets in fact of mm-hmm. some of the uh, of some of the organizing. So that's a a new thing yeah. that we've seen here in Chicago. Yeah, and I think to the point of of hospitals and and uh, other industries, you know, there's a need. Uh, for the affected industries by these policies to engage, you know, in the conversation from a way that acknowledges where there are issues. Um, You know, we uh, recently in Chicago had an ordinance uh, enacted on, you know, Fair Work Week, um, scheduling practices, you know, to avoid, uh, you know, or or seek to legislate to avoid, um, you know, uh, kind of uh, vindictive or, you know, punitive scheduling practices by employers. And the hospitals are, are an example of an industry that, you know, engaged in that process very late. And they, they ended up kind of getting a kind of brief reprieve uh, in the ordinance that was adopted. But eventually it's going to come back where they said, you know, it's life or death, it's medicine. And those types of arguments just are not um, holding water anymore. And you need to, as industries, they need to recognize where there are problems and seek to address them. Otherwise, you risk getting cut out of the conversation. Great. Well, that adds part one of our discussion. We'll be back with part two. Thank you for listening to the Beltway Briefing. If you liked our show, subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. And while you're at it, drop us a rating. To learn more about the Beltway Briefing or Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, please visit our website at copublicstrategies.com.